So you just wrote some songs and recorded them at home. What do you do next? I'm Portia Sabin. This year on The Future of What, we're starting a new series called Music Industry 101, where we talk about important things that musicians just starting out, and those further along, should know about the business. Today, we'll look at what happens at the very beginning. You wrote some songs, you recorded them, and now you want people to listen to them. Did you know that as soon as you write a song, you get a certain set of rights? That's R-I-G-H-T rights. Well, you do. Then, when you record those songs and release them, you get another set of rights. On this episode, we'll talk about songwriting, publishing, and master rights, and about how to self-release an album. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Stay with us. Breathe life to the street from your mouth. Those ruby red lips have much to give. Pull life from the land with your capable hands. Those life-loving, beautiful, broken hands. Oh, I'll stand with you and marvel at the cosmos pink and bright. All the pages flipping backwards to time is gone and wrong is right. Rivers running up the hills into the sky and down to the sea. Where a merman with a twinkle casts a hook in me. Sing me a salty blue song, I'll be gone. Watery cheeks down flowered lanes Tattered sails on a ramshackle ship I'll go pale Staring straight in the face Looming tempest waves Otherwise I'll wither Die here on this reach of rubble Rambling with two ears Filled up with sand, dear And a broken gaze I'll be scrambling Like rivers running up the hills Into the sky That was Cast a Hook in Me by Laura Veers. My first guest is Mark Emmert Hutner, the Vice President of Membership Pop Rock at ASCAP. Mark, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. Thank you. Yay. So on this episode, we are really doing a kind of music industry 101 for musicians. So I wanted to talk to you because you've worked at ASCAP for years, and you can tell us, first of all, what is ASCAP? And second of all, why do new musicians need to know about it? ASCAP stands for American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, and it is a performing rights organization. It's the, the first of its kind in the United States, and it's been around since 1914, so it's, it's over 100 years old. And the main purpose of ASCAP, as it's been from day one, is to we represent songwriters and publishers in the world of performances. So anytime you hear music publicly, that is radio, TV, internet, elevators, 
you know, sporting events, anywhere that, again, where, where music is being played publicly, a license should have been obtained by ASCAP or any of our competitors, and that license grants these people the ability to perform this music. So theoretically, anytime you're hearing music, uh, performance royalties are being generated. So songwriters and publishers need to join one ASCAP, for instance, in order to receive these performance royalties. Publishers can join all of them, but writers can only join one. So it's up to the writers to pick the one. So it's, it's a necessary part of the equation. In order to receive your performance royalties, you need to join. You can, theoretically, use that word again, you, you could, if you're a songwriter, not join and decide you're going to go out there in the world and do your own direct licensing and collection. But I would guess that it would be nearly impossible task. What ASCAP has that makes this thing work is collective bargaining. So if you went out on your own, you would have to go knocking on all the doors yourselves and then say, if you want to play my song, you have to pay me. And they would likely not even, you know, return the call or open the door. <laughs> so right. it, it's just much easier. And we're not for profit and we collect the most and we distribute the most in performance royalties. And so that's, that is the main function of ASCAP. We do many other things, but, but that is from, from day one till now, that is the true, true reason that we exist. Great. And so what we can say as shorthand is because you guys are a performing rights organization or a PRO, that's what those organizations are called pros. And there are several in America. There's ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and probably another that I can't think of. But it is important for a new songwriter to join a PRO because otherwise, like you said, it's pretty difficult to try to go out and get direct licenses with every organization that might want to play your music. Right. But there's also some of the other things you guys do. You do international collections, right? Yeah. So we have reciprocal agreements with performing rights organizations or performing rights societies around the world. And the idea is, for instance, if a band is English and they are members of the English Performing Rights Society, which is called PRS, we have reciprocal agreements with PRS so that whenever English music is performed in the States and, they're li- and they license through ASCAP, we collect that money on behalf of those writers and then send it to PRS who then turn around and give it to their writers. And the same is true in reverse. So anytime the ASCAP writers have a hit or performances overseas in, in PRS's territories, they collect and then distribute it to ASCAP, and we turn around and pay our writers. So essentially, when you join an ASCAP, it covers you for the world. You're, you're, you, I say theoretically because you know, if you're having performances in North Korea, they're probably not going to generate revenue, but the idea is that you can join ASCAP and you're covered for performances across the globe. Right, and that's really something that, in general, artists can't do for themselves. That's a pretty important thing that PROs yeah. can do. So let's get even more, now that you've told us what PROs do, Let's get back to even more basics. So when, let's say somebody goes online and says, okay, I want to sign up as an ASCAP songwriter, they're going to see a couple of things. First of all, they're going to see that they can become a songwriter, which is easy, right? You just, it can be your own name <laughs> and you can register your songs and say, I wrote these songs. But each song has more than one part, right? Because there's mm-hmm. a songwriter part and then there's this publishing part. So can you explain to us the difference between the songwriting and publishing parts of a song? Yeah. Okay. So the songwriter part is easy, right? So you, you're sitting down with your guitar and you're, you're writing a song and you finish it. Okay. So we've established now that you're a songwriter. So that is 50% 
of what ASCAP represents, the composer slash songwriter. Now, the moment you put your guitar down, you've crossed over the threshold. You are Not only are you the songwriter, but you are now the publisher. By default, the publisher is a word that confuses a lot of people, but essentially it just means you own that song. You own the intellectual property, the rights to that song. And so now you're playing a dual role. You're the creator and you're the publisher. And you will remain the publisher until or if you sign a deal and you, you share the rights, you give part of them away or you license them away or something like that. But you know the two are important uh, distinctions. So the songwriter is just the creative portion of it. They have You have no rights as such. You're just the creator. And I don't mean to downplay just, but there are no rights to it. Publisher, even though thankfully in this instance it's still you, you you retain all the rights, but that is the business entity of the two. That's the one where if I want to use it in a commercial, I need to obtain rights not from the the creative person, but from the publisher. And they say, I want to use this song in a commercial, it's going to air for these amount of seconds, and this is the territory, and I only have this amount of money to pay. And because you are the publisher, you take off your creative hat, you put on your other hat that says, I'm the publisher, and you say, okay, you can use it, or you can't use it, or you can, but I'm going to charge you this much, and you have limited you know, territory, and whatever it is, the negotiating is, is taking place when you're wearing your publisher hat, not your creative hat. And that is the other half of what ASCAP represents. So anytime a song generates performance royalties, let's just say it was on HBO and it generated just for the sake of argument, $1,000 for that performance, ASCAP would pay 500 of that to the songwriter and 500 of that to the publisher. So assuming that it's still just you, you're the only songwriter and publisher, you receive 100%, you receive $1,000 but in two distinct payments. And again, that can change as you you sign publishing deals and all that. You can give part of that away or share part of that, uh, the publishing part, but you'll still remain the, the writer. You'll never give that away. This is so fascinating. You know, this show is, is mainly about the music business, and I talk all the time about how basically the, the modern music industry is is a collection of historical accidents. Like, we're just in this weird space where, like, stuff exists because that's just how it happened. And I feel like this publishing thing is so much like that because the, the whole reason we have a publishing entity as the entity with the rights is because of sheet music. Isn't that true? Yeah, I mean... When ASCAP was born in 1914, yeah, it was sheet music. It was piano rolls, and you know, it was, in, it was Tin Pan Alley. It was in Manhattan, and that was the business. And you know, people would sit in these little um, studios and these these almost like music factory studios and, and churn out hits. And the royalties of the day were were that you know sheet music sales, and then of course radio became a dominant force and then TV and then cable and then iPhones, you know, it, it keeps evolving and we have, we have to keep adjusting ourselves. Everything, every time we think that we have, okay, this is it, this is the model, <laughs> something else gets invented. And so right. what I will say is really great about, about ASCAP is, is we embrace the technology because it, it simply means that there's, oh, great, there's another source of revenue. The idea is to embrace it. Certainly not, not, let them, you know, steamroll over us because nobody, in the end, it's pretty rare that anybody's excited about paying ASCAP, you know, license fees. So it's not usually part of the, the tech business model. So we have to fight our way into the room and sit at the table and say, okay, this is a great business model. However, 
you have to take this part of it in consideration. The, the driving force of your business is music. You're not the creator. You're using other people's music, so you have to pay for it. And, and so that becomes the, the song and dance that we have to do. But, but yeah, it's, it's a bunch of accidents that make us go back to the, the drawing board and say, oh, yes, this needs to happen. But yeah, from that point forward, from 1914, it, it, it's, it's about, it has always been about the songwriter and the publisher. My aside in saying that was, that helps clear up why it's the term publisher, because if you think mm-hmm. of it as someone who published sheet music, that makes more sense to people. I think, you know, because otherwise it doesn't sort of like, why is it, why are we publishing anything? Like, what, True. What, yeah, should, what is that it, word? It should probably be just called, probably just called like rights holders or something, right? Right, right. That yeah. would make it more yeah. clear. It is, it is an antiquated term, that's for sure. <laughs> so let's go back to, so let's say your young musician is looking at the internet and they're trying to sign themselves up as a songwriter. So that part was easy. Then they have to, they see that they have to sign themselves also up as a publisher. That's fairly easy too. The one thing that you do have to do is you have to pick a publishing company name, right? Yeah. And the idea is that it's on the global stage. So you can't just say Mark Emmert Hutner is the songwriter and I'm going to call my publishing company Rock and Roll Music Publishing. <laughs> I probably couldn't do that because I'm sure there's definitely someone else on the planet that has either that exact name or something, Rock and Roll Music Songs or Rock and Roll Music something. So you, you need something that's distinct enough that it's not already taken or it's too similar that there could be payment screw-ups where you know, we, we paid the wrong person because we thought it was this company and it's only one letter off. And so you have to be creative at this point. There's so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of publishing company names out there. It takes a little bit of an effort to creative. So that's the idea. So that's really the only big hurdle in joining as a publisher is finding a unique name that you want to live with and that will represent you in the marketplace as a, as a publisher or rights holder, if you will. But there's a cool feature on the website, right, where you can actually search. You can put in the name that you want and search to see if anyone else is using it. Well, for us now, it, that's evolved a bit. Now it's such that if you put it in as your option and it'll tell you immediately, yeah, if, if it's taken or not. It used oh, to be cool. you'd have to submit three to five names and we'd pick the first one that's available. But now you can't even submit your application in real time unless it clears right then and there. Oh, that's so smart. I love that. <laughs> yeah, because you can tell I did it, you know, when I was a publisher <laughs> of my own songs. That was years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. Back in the yep. old days. I think there was still paper involved, actually. There was. There was that, uh... <laughs> oh, Yep. The olden days. Okay, cool. So now we sort of understand where we stand. So the, the musician has become a songwriter and a publisher, and now he or she holds the rights that are available to hold for having written a song and putting it out there into the marketplace. Correct. So now the next thing you can tell us about is with all these technological changes, can you tell us what we're looking at in terms of performance rights with the two major new types of ways that people get paid? So there's interactive streaming functions and then there's non-interactive like Pandora. Right. So by joining ASCAP, you register your songs. Well, can I, let me backtrack just one second. Well, I guess what I failed to note is that just because you've joined an ASCAP or one of our competitors and just because you've joined as a writer and publisher does not mean that your songs are copyrighted. That is something separate that the songwriters need to do. They need to contact the copyright office in D.C. and actually copyright the material. We assume that when you're a writer and publisher member that the songs that you are registering are copyrighted by you. But if it gets challenged and someone says, you stole that song from me or whatever, we have to 
you know, defer to the writer being able to, to provide the documentation. And we're very uh, neutral on that. So, so I just wanted to say that. Yeah, good point. Thanks. So online, streaming, interactive, non-interactive. So yeah, there's the t- two different business models. And the license fees that we get from those vary depending on the business model. So if, if something is non-interactive, meaning I go to this application or station and they just play the music that they want and I listen to it because I like the music that they play, well, that's non-interactive. And that, with a, with a bunch of other factors, would be part of what license fee we try to get from them. An interactive one where, where I'm telling them what to play or I define my genres and sort of tailor it to me and that kind of thing, that's a different business model and would also be a, one of the variables that we, we would look at when we go to license. And so step one would be joining. Step two would be registering the songs so that we you grant us permission to go out into the, the world, the marketplace, and, and collect on your behalf. And then our job is to license these companies is Pandora's and Spotify's and YouTube's and all that, and then secure a license and then monitor the performances on each of them and pay you for performances on those stations, which is based on the license fee that we get from them ultimately, which is determined by all those variables, one being interactive versus non-interactive and all that other stuff. Right. Gotcha. That's interesting. The other thing you said that was interesting is that the rights don't reside with the writer. They reside with the publisher. Correct. That is something I never knew. That's fascinating. Yeah. If I write, like in the olden days, when a publisher was in fact a publisher of sheet music and all that, so you, the writers would just write, and then they don't have a say in, the, in what, get, what happens with the songs, who, who sells it. And so it's, it's, it's such a misunderstood concept in, in some ways hard to grasp and you know it's intellectual property it's not something that you it's not a tangible thing it's a song but how important it is because owning that and being able to command certain rates or or, or uses and a, a hit song a hit song can last you know on the radio it can be a hit from you know nine months to a year if you're lucky but if you happen to be one of those people that write a classic and you own the publishing that could conceivably set you and your family and your kids and your grandkids up for a very long time. These rights are, are enduring and have a lot of, of power behind them. So it's you know it's a it's a interesting concept. There's a book that I always recommend. It's it's, it's a few years now, so it's a, it's a little outdated. It's probably about ten years old. So there are a lot of issues not covered in it, but the concept is the same. It's called Making Music Make Money by Eric Beal. And the idea is, is simply kind of what I was saying earlier. Like, you wrote a song, now you're the publisher of that song. What does that mean? How do you monetize? How do you generate revenue? How do you, if you, was it just for yourself? Did you write this for Willie Nelson? If you did, how do you get it to Willie Nelson? Like, look, and, and it puts it in really practical terms. It's almost like a publishing for dummies book. It's not quite that dumbed down, but, but it, it, it's, a, it's really digestible. It's only like 90 pages, and it's... Uh, and I read it occasionally to sort of refresh myself on some of these slightly nebulous concepts. But I do recommend it if you've got $15 to spare. Cool. My husband once dated a girl whose grandmother wrote the theme song to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and like the whole the whole family were living. She wrote the theme song to Gilligan's Island and We Built the City on Rock and Roll by Jefferson Airplane mm-hmm. or Jefferson Starship. Uh-huh. Or Starship. I don't know whether they were, <laughs> yeah, what they were at that point. 
But yeah, they like the whole family just lived off the royalties of the yep. <laughs> songs. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, it's really it's it's quite stellar. I mean, the, we deal with you know estates and you know our founding members of ASCAP, the Irving Berlins and the Gershwins, like those still obviously earn great money, and there's a timeless, timely species, and their families reap the benefits of it. So it's very, very real concept, and I would urge anybody. Anybody who's listening to this, I guess, is already thinking that way. You know, it's like if you're a songwriter, to me, you're a small business owner, and and it's up to you to do the research. You, you would you just open a restaurant anywhere? No, you'd probably do the research. You'd figure out what location is the best, and and, and what's you know, you would do all that. So why would you not do that if you're a songwriter? This is this is your business, and. And there are many ways to be hurt by it. There are many ways to monetize it. There's many. There are many people trying to exploit you and it, and and you just have to know what you're doing as best you can, while still retaining the creative element. That's. I, I was always guilty of just focusing on the creative and rolling the dice that the business would work out. And I don't recommend people doing that. Yeah, because you're a musician. I mean, you're a musician from the beginning. So that's actually that's how you got into this business, right? That is, yeah. I mean, it's it's embarrassing. I mean, I didn't learn any of this stuff. I was a member of BMI, and then they asked, I didn't even know what they were, and I'd get royalties. <laughs> and I was like, that's great. I don't know what this is, but I'm, I'm going to go spend it. <laughs> but, you know, in my defense, it was an easier world at that at that point. It was 20 years ago. Now it's it's like the world's empowered the little guy, the songwriters, the young bands. There's so many more opportunities but with those opportunities are responsibilities. You, you know, you, you have to know what companies you're joining and what rights you're signing, exclusive, non-exclusive, all these things. That they Those just really weren't really available. To me, at the, back in the day, you, you, you signed up to a label and you signed a publishing deal and you went on tour. And now, you know, you could literally just run a small business out of, off your laptop. And so there's a lot to learn. Yeah, there really is. And thank you so much for helping us learn this part of it, because I think that's been extremely critical for, like you said, these people listening who are, in essence, running a small business, even if they don't want to think about it like that. It's, you know, it matters a lot these days where you, what you do with your rights. And and just to know that you have rights, like as soon as you write a song, you have rights. Mm -hmm. So that's really important for people to understand because, you know, it's so easy, like exactly like you said, when you and I were younger, we could just be in bands and tour and not think about anything Mm -hmm. and just be like, oh, they'll send me a check when, you know, mysteriously from out of the universe, like money will show up. But it's not like that anymore because the avenues for making money have changed so significantly and drastically. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. The world of performing rights, when I was coming up, you know, it was the late 80s, early 90s, and the performing rights, I don't want to say they were, it was on like the fringe, but it was really just, it, it, the focus was, you know, label and publishing. And as and as our business has, has shifted so insanely in the past few years, as you know, revenue streams have all sort of shrunk, and the performing rights has become like everyone's focus because that is if you're not selling records but you're on the radio you're you're making money, and all of a sudden the world of, of performance royalties has become very dynamic and important, and there's you know people trying to enter the game and and what does this all mean and so it's been a really interesting 
you know journey starting starting here 15 something years ago and watching this thing change it's it's really unbelievable well, Mark Emmert Hutner is the vice president for membership Pop Rock at ASCAP. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the future of what? Thank you for having me, Portia. Sit down there in your favorite chair Pour yourself some wine Sit down there in your favorite chair And pour yourself some wine Take off your coat and stay a while You know all those cliché pleasantries Take up your coat and your hat and stay a while Spend some time with me I've got to get to know you better I wish I knew myself better Crashing down The water's rising The air is thin You know that That was Stargazers Are Blind by Owen McCarthy. If you're enjoying this program, please consider becoming a subscriber on Bandcamp. Just go to thefutureofwhat.bandcamp.com To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at K-R-S-F-O-W. Now, back to the show. So Mark Emmert Hutner just described the songwriter and publishing rights inherent in songs and how you can sign up with a PRO to claim those rights. The next step is getting your music into the marketplace. An easy way is to upload your songs onto Bandcamp or SoundCloud if you want to release your album digitally, if you want to have the option of a physical release, and most importantly, if you want to get your music distributed, you can use a service like CD Baby. Kevin Bruner is VP of Marketing at CD Baby, and he joins us in the studio. Kevin, welcome back to the future of what? Thank you for having me. So Good nice to, to see you in the actual Portland studio. Yeah, that's right. This is a nice place. Yeah, we like it. So give us sort of the, the basics of, so a new songwriter writes some songs and records them at home, and then they want to make a release. So they come to CD Baby, and what are their options? Well, you know, you mentioned that an artist could put their stuff on Bandcamp or SoundCloud, but at CD Baby, we help them distribute their music to all the digital retailers, and uh, we also still do physical distribution as well, both through our website and through our partner company, Alliance. So for us, you know, it's about helping artists tap into all the revenue streams for their music. So distribution is kind of the the core piece of what we do, but we also have ventured into publishing and YouTube monetization and all those other revenue streams. So for us, it's just really about helping artists maximize their earning potential from their music. Cool. So that means that they can get themselves onto Spotify, Pandora, stuff like that. Are there different tiers? Can you tell us how people can do that? Yeah, I mean, the, the two basic tiers that we have is the the standard distribution option that gets you to, you know, basically any digital retailer like Spotify or or Apple Music, any of those places that you've heard of will get your music there. 
and uh, we'll help you sell CDs. And then we have our CD Baby Pro option, which adds publishing administration for songwriters. So if you're not writing original music, if you're just releasing cover tunes, then that option's not really for you. But if you're writing original music, then that helps you tap into extra royalties that are generated from the sales of your music. So would an artist still need to sign up with a PRO, or is that this instead of signing up with a PRO, or what, how does this work? You still need a PRO. The, the PRO is going to collect performance royalties on behalf of you, the songwriter, but as far as getting tapping into the publishing money, we're, we're collecting the publishing portion that a lot of times is pretty much impossible for the independent artist to go out and collect on their own. It, I, I can't say it's not possible, but it, you know, if you want to make it your full-time job to go out and build all these relationships with uh, publishing entities that uh, will help you tap into that money, you can do so. But uh, that's what we do. We, we collect that for artists. And with the shift to streaming, it's actually becoming more important because you know Spotify, every time someone streams your music, there's the, the portion that's earned from the, the recording, but then there's also the mechanical royalty that's being generated, and a lot of independent artists don't realize that that money's there and, and can be collected, and it, uh, it adds up. Yeah, no, no doubt. So was that sort of like a publishing admin deal? Yes, it's a publishing admin deal. You still own all the rights to your music. We just help you tap into that revenue stream. So Right, and so people understand that there's a couple of different types of publishing deals. One is where you actually sell your rights to a publishing company for usually a large advance. Yes. And then the other is a publishing admin deal where normally, basically, it's you guys administer the rights for a percentage. Yeah, correct. It's just the artists say, hey... You know, I want you to go do this work on my behalf, and we go and do it and, until they tell us to stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> so now, do you guys have, do you help, like if you could give us an example of an artist who's doing well on CD Baby, and they have the pro option, they've got you guys administering their publishing, and they've got their stuff up on all sorts of sources, what kind of marketing help, like do you do marketing help, or like how does that work? For an artist that's reached that level that's that's generating some pretty hefty revenue from both, you know, publishing and, and standard distribution, all that. We do have some guys in the office that actually are pretty much serving as a record company. I mean, they're, they're providing all the, the services. That, uh, we pretty much stop short at, like, going out and doing a big marketing campaign on their behalf, but we have been testing a few things with that as well. But we do have a lot of services that really help that artist tap into a bigger audience, especially on the, surprisingly on the physical side. Some of the artists that uh, have stuck with us in recent years that have debated signing a, a record deal and have had offers and decided to stay with us actually end up, you know, having just as big of a reach because we have, you know, in-store distribution options and things like that. And we're actually, you know, pitching their releases to iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, and getting them featured, you know, on the front page and all that kind of stuff. So we have a lot of those services in-house that we're starting to expand to help artists that, you know, we, we, want, we want whatever's best for the artist, but, you know, we also think that unless a major label comes knocking with a, a really great offer that, you know, we want to make sure that they know that we can help them out in a lot of ways that is beyond what they might just see on our website. Right. And of course, you know, someone like me would probably debate whether a major label offer was really that great. They yeah. may they may be offering <laughs> you more money up front yes. than you would normally see in a isn't a regular day or year or multiple years. But still with C D baby you keep so much the artist keeps so much of his or her revenue, right? Of the digital income you keep ninety one percent, which 
is, you know, having been on a, a major label back in the day myself, that's a lot. <laughs> I was actually looking at our record contract recently, and I was, it was just, it was a horror show. Um, and uh, <laughs> Your old band? Yes. Oh yes. my gosh. It was from back in the mid-90s, and uh, it's, it's a great way for artists to get their music out there. They keep all the rights, and really for an artist that's starting out, because that's where this conversation kind of started, it's really about, you know, you need to start building an audience, building fans of your music, and focus on that. And then, you know, there's opportunities where some things may make sense to partner with various people to help you get to the next level, but it really starts with getting your music out there and start connecting with fans and, and building that audience that that gives you leverage to end up in better situations. Yeah. So if an artist signs up for CD Baby and let's say goes ahead and and does all the physical, I mean, all the uh, digital distribution sources, but then they just want to make some CDs to take on tour. Yeah. Is that an option? Yes, it is. I mean, our sister company is Disc Makers. And so we have all sorts of options as far as making discs for for artists, which, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're almost to 2016. And it's there really still hasn't been much to replace the CD at the show as far as like artists having something to sell that people will go and buy. I mean, there's T-shirts and stuff, but yeah, if you're out touring, it, it's funny because when I go play shows with my band, it's so people still want the CD at the show, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm happy to sell it to them. <laughs> right. It's funny. You're right. It's it's like at that sweet spot, that yeah. price point that it's like ten bucks or whatever, and people are just happy to buy it, and you can take it home. I don't know. I, f- I find the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, People still want it. One of the guys over at Disc Makers was saying that the CD is kind of shifted from being a medium to carry the music to more being a souvenir at, mm-hmm. that, at the show. And if, if you look at it that way, it makes perfect sense to still have them at your show. Yeah, absolutely. I have noticed lately that I feel like physical product has been selling steadily better a little bit over the last couple of years. Yeah. It's, Do you if, see that? In 2013 and 2014, our CD sales were way up. Totally a surprise. We shocker for us. This year it's kind of come back down to earth, but a lot of it was through Amazon and through our partnership with Alliance and Super D going through uh, stores, regular retail stores. But you know, it's kind of interesting. We we work with this group called Ninja Sex Party. They are a total YouTube band. Their audience is on YouTube. It's kind of a, a comedy music thing. And and you would think that somebody whose whole career is on YouTube. They're, they're not thinking physical. They're not thinking CDs. And we just did a three CD package pre-sale with them. It was $35 for three CDs. And they sold over 16000 before it actually released. Whoa. So, and I think it ended up being, you know, seventeen or 18000 Whoa. So you do the math at $35 a piece. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. And they were at, our, at CD Baby signing CDs for an entire week because they were all supposed to be signed. Oh, man. And so uh, up in one of our rooms, there was just stacks and stacks of CDs. And they, they sat there all week, almost eight <gasps> hours a day signing them. Wow. For us to ship out to all their fans. So it's it's interesting that it's pretty common for artists to think, okay, this thing's the new thing, so I'm just going to focus on that. You know, the world's a streaming world. Forget downloads, forget CDs, it's all streaming. And I think that's a mistake because at this point, there is not one format that wins the day. There's there's fans that still want to buy CDs. There's fans that are only on streaming. I think you got to look at all the opportunities for you to make money from your music and not think that, hey, my audience is all on YouTube, so therefore none of them want CDs. I mean, that, that would be a... 
a major, major <laughs> miscalculation by, you know, that one group. Uh, you know, they pretty much don't have to work for a while. Right. <laughs> so. Absolutely. And for me, that's a real red flag because you want a band to tour. I mean, a, a band is going to build its audience through touring. And if you have nothing to sell on tour, you're just hurting yourself. I mean, exactly. It makes no exactly. sense. You want yeah. something physical yeah, to sell. Yeah, you got you to have something. The fans want want something. And it's weird because, like I said, there's not been something to replace the CD. I've experienced it with my own band. We're like, should we get CDs of this one? And it's like, we people go to the merch table. I've tried download cards. That didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, they want CDs. It's weird. Well, it's portable. I mean, I just was hearing something about whose album was it? Was it like Eugene Merman's album or something was released as a couch? Did you hear that? Mm-mm. Like you actually bought a couch with a download code <laughs> and that was what, how idea. you got the CD. It, and I was I like, wow, that is... fans need furniture. Totally. I mean, <laughs> it's like a great m- gimmick, but really at the end of the day, yeah. you're not going to sell couches after your shows no, every night. no. <laughs> no, the road crew would not be happy with no. that situation. <laughs> well, you'd need a road crew, and so then you'd have to pay for that. It, the whole thing is crazy. Yeah. Kevin Bruner is VP of Marketing at CD Baby. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thanks for having me. Talk soft so you fall asleep Cook your dinner but you would not Sharp mouth forgets when you swore. God damn, you wouldn't do it again. And I bend back with an eye full of mud, and I take it on the chin, and then I patch you up.
That was Feet Asleep by Tao Win. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook or become a subscriber at thefutureofwhat.bandcamp.com. And thanks. So once you've self-released your album and gotten it distributed digitally and physically, you are now eligible to receive royalties from SoundExchange. Michael Darpino is Director of Account Services at SoundExchange. Michael, welcome to The Future of What? Hi, thanks for having me, Portia. So, tell us, we have this hypothetical musician listener who has uploaded their music via CD Baby onto services like Spotify and Pandora, gotten it distributed into retail stores. So now, they are now master rights holders, which is new, because before they were songwriters and publishers, but now they're also master rights holders. So can you explain what rights go along with that and what SoundExchange collects for them? Sure. You know, an artist is, you know, that is, as you've explained, has recorded their own album and, and they own the, they own the master recording to the album, but they've also performed on the recording. SoundExchange would come into play to distribute the statutory royalty or statutory license for satellite and digital non-interactive broadcasters. You know, the best examples of those would be Sirius XM and Pandora. So let's say these Pandora is an example. Pandora is you know, playing uh, songs off of the album that your, you know, your artist has performed on and owns, Pandora would be reporting those plays to SoundExchange along with the statutory royalty earned by those plays. The artist would want to register with SoundExchange as both a performer and a sound recording copyright owner. So it's actually two sides, and you can accomplish that in one registration if you use our online registration tool. Let's just as an example, 100% of the royalty comes to SoundExchange from Pandora for one of those songs. SoundExchange is dividing that money up, 50% for the sound recording copyright owner. That would be the person that owns the master recording. 45% of that would go to the featured artist on the recording. So if your hypothetical artist is a solo artist, they would be receiving 45% of that as the, as the featured artist share. And then 5% by law uh, gets sent from SoundExchange to a non-featured artist fund, which is typically for session musicians and backup singers. We pay into that fund, but we don't administer it. So, you know, the artist, your hypothetical artist, as we're discussing, could use our online registration and in one session register as a featured artist performer for the 45% and also register as the sound recording copyright owner of that master recording for 50%. So that artist would ultimately end up receiving 95% of the royalty from that song being played on Pandora. The 5% set by law, that comes out of every every recording uh, that's played and, you know, reported to us, whether or not it's a solo recording or not. So, you know, that, that that's there in, in sort of a union fund, so to speak, for non-featured artist performers. That may be someone you want to follow up with. They may be somebody else that uh, you may want to talk to for your program to discuss the 5% further. <laughs> right. For our purposes today, that's getting a little in the weeds, so we probably won't worry about it too much, but it's good to know that it happens. That's an important fund because it's money that goes to people who otherwise would make nothing off of their performances. And since we do not have a terrestrial performance right in this country yet, those people really are making nothing. So it's kind of awesome that they're at least getting, you know, 5% of royalties generated from non-interactive satellite and internet radio play. Oh, it really is great. And, and I'll often find that when I'm, you know, I'm talking with, um, you know, registrants and helping them sort out their royalties, 
that if someone is the featured artist performer and, and is registering on Sound Exchange, odds are they've performed on someone else's recording and may also have royalties with that 5% fund. You know, I was talking to someone just the other day who has royalties with us as a, as a sound recording copyright owner, as a featured artist performer. Uh, we got them situated with Sound Exchange. But then, you know, as they explained their career to me, it sounded like they also wanted to go and register with the fund. So, you know, so sometimes, you know, sometimes people who are registering with us should also register there. That's awesome. You know, Sound Exchange is an interesting company because you guys were basically set up after some, you know, I, I talk a lot on the show about how the, the music industry is really a mishmash of historical accidents. <laughs> you know, it's this patchwork that we've just all put together of like, well, this is how we have to handle stuff. And basically what happened was the government set some statutory licenses. They, they created some statutory rates for non-interactive radio play, internet and satellite radio play. And so a body had to be created to set that up, and that's Sound Exchange. So you guys are, in fact, a nonprofit, correct? That's right. We're, we're a nonprofit organization, and we're working in partnership with the U.S. Copyright Office, you know, with the Library of Congress. So this statutory royalty, as you said, was created in, in the late 90s by Congress. Uh, however, the government quickly realized that they weren't the correct people to be distributing this royalty. So, you know, the Sound Exchange, that's where Sound Exchange comes in. We start as a nonprofit organization, and we're based in Washington, D.C., the same place as the Copyright Office, you know, and, and our mission is to get as much of these royalties out the door to the, you know, sound printing copyright owners and featured artists as possible. So, uh, you know, we make great efforts to find people and get them their money, and, uh, you know, we, we try to keep our overhead as low as possible in a true nonprofit spirit. I've talked to Mike Huppy a couple of times, who's the president of Sound Exchange, about how in the early days of Sound Exchange, it really seemed like the Nigerian prince to a lot of people. <laughs> like, you know, sign up with us and we'll send you a million dollars. And it just seemed crazy. And for a long time, artists were just really skeptical because they were like, why would I? They say they have money for me. That's ridiculous. But it has changed, right? Over the last 10 years, you guys have, have started to get people to sign up more easily, correct? Oh, it certainly has. And, you know, I'm proud to say I've been a big part of that. Uh, when I started at Sound Exchange a little, a little over six years ago, that was my personal experience trying to help people. Uh, you know, we, we have money for you, but no one believes you. And, and the information that we ask for to prove you are the person whose money this is, you know, it can be a little off-putting to get a cold call saying, hey, we have money for you. Send me your driver's license. Give me your social security number. So we used to run into that constantly. You know, we've, we've done a lot, you know, account services particularly. We've changed a lot of things and, you know, obviously have really evolved a great customer service presence in the industry. And I, I think that helps get word of mouth spread. And then, the, you know, the rest of the organization has done a great thing in fighting for better royalty rates and we get good press coverage from that. And, and now I, I find that, you know, most people, we're now an accepted thing in the industry. And we have more people coming to us than we did, you know, let's say in 2009, no one was coming to us. We, were, we had to, you know, do everything we could to find people. Now now people are coming to us. Uh, we have a lot of great partners in the industry helping us get people registered. And the record labels also do a great job of, of, you know, letting their artists know that we're here and we're legit. So, you know, th those kind of problems are, you know, they're still there in the margins, but they're, they're no, no more the norm uh, like they were six years ago. So back to our hypothetical young musician who hears this program and thinks, okay, great, I got to sign up with SoundExchange. They go online to soundexchange.org, right? And they find the online sign up portion. 
what are the most common issues that people have with signing up? I've, tra- I've done a lot. I've personally helped design our online registration to try to make it easier to register. So one of the one of the biggest pitfalls is really kind of a simple one. Uh, we require a copy of the photo ID of the artist so that they can prove who they are. You know, it, it sounds kind of silly, but we often will get people uploading pictures of themselves. <laughs> we, that, that's probably our number one pitfall. Like you can do everything right. And we can create your account, but without that photo ID, I can't make it payable. So, you know, uploading a cop before you begin registering, having a copy of a government-issued photo ID in a digital form that you can upload is, is probably the, the number one tip in registering. Uh, you know, just, you'd be surprised how many people that trips up. So having a government-issued photo ID and a digital copy before you begin is a big one. Another one would, I would say that people sort of have issues with is taxes. You know, especially an artist who is self-releasing, you know, I, I equate that to being, you know, a, a small business person or entrepreneur. I, I was an entrepreneur myself and before Sound Exchange, and the tax world can be quite confusing. So I see when people are registering that they either aren't prepared to answer tax questions. And, you know, we only ask a, a few simple ones. Basically, the name we're going to pay you in is the name that we would want you to submit a tax document under. So if I'm paying Bob Jones, I need a W-9 tax form from Bob Jones with his social security number. The, this, that's kind of the second big area of registration sort of go awry is they request to be paid in one name. They provide tax document information for a, a completely different name. That causes problems on both ends. Sound exchange gets penalized by the IRS if we're making that payable, but then the artist may have difficulty filing a tax return at the end of the year. So I usually recommend, you know, before beginning to register, make sure you know what name you want to be paid in and prepare a tax document to support that name with a U.S. tax ID. Those are two big, the ID and the tax form are the two biggest registration issues I I come across day to day. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something actually we didn't touch on yet, but I think is really pertinent and perfect for this episode just how do you get yourself tax identity as an artist? I mean, if you're just, you know, you're a singer-songwriter and you're going to be, like you said, Bob Jones, Bob Jones LLC or Bob Jones Inc., great, that's easy. But what if you're in a band? How do you figure that out? And you generally have to create some kind of a tax entity. I usually suggest to my bands that they create an LLC and then have all the members of the band become members of the LLC. But that's really important. I mean, I've gotten into that exact trouble because my company has a corporation name, but we do business as Kill Rockstars. And that's really confusing. It says Kill Rockstars on our check, but that's not our corporate identity. So it's the exact same problem. And, and that's really important for people when they want, want to try to pay you is that they get the right name. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and just to elaborate on that a bit, Sound Exchange, and just trying to make it easier for everyone, really can accept a lot of different payment scenarios. So, for instance, the singer-songwriter cooperates solo, you know, by all means can go and create a company and get a U.S. tax ID assigned to it. However, they don't have to wait for that. They can register as an individual and use their Social Security number as their tax number and, and get paid that way. Members of a band, we can definitely set up Band LLC or Band Inc. and, and pay, you know, 100% of the royalties to that company. A rule there is the, the band company has to be 
wholly owned by the featured artist members of the band. So sometimes we'll see a band that one member of the band makes a company, but the other members of the band don't co-own that company. Technically, we would only be able to pay that one member's royalties to that company. However, the other members can register as individuals with their social security numbers and get paid their shares. So we, we kind of have a mutable system here where we can take four individuals and pay them, you know, with their social security numbers. That would be they each get individual payments, and that's 100% of the band. Or they can get together and make a band LLC and we'll pay, make one payment to that company. You know, we're, we're flexible here and really can accommodate just about any, any payment scenario as long as it's the artist, him or herself, or the band owning a company. The one payment scenario I should mention that we won't accommodate is what we call third party, where let's say an artist has a representative, a manager or agent, and that manager or agent wants the payments for that artist to be made in the manager or agent's name or in their company's name. Sound Exchange, we, you know, as you know from talking to Mike Huppie, takes protecting the artist right very seriously. And so, you know, we're not going to pay management firm Inc. for solo artists' royalties. It'll be what we can accommodate is making the payment in the solo artist's name, and then we can mail the payment in care of that management firm but we would never make the payment in the name of the management firm. I think that's an important point to make as well. And, and I do see that sometimes in registrations where, you know, the, the management firm misunderstands and attempts to make themselves the payee. My staff would, you know, politely push back on that and explain our, our third-party policy and, and get it changed to be made in the artist's name. And the last thing I wanted to mention about sound exchange is that it's important for people to understand that there's, you guys have, no incentive. In fact, you have disincentives to hold on to any money. You're actually trying to get rid of all the money that you collect. Is that correct? Oh, that, that's totally correct. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of, um, you know, when I talk to my friends at parties and things about what I do for a living, uh, it's pretty unique in that I work we, I work at a company whose main goal is to get the money out the door. We, we don't want this money. I mean, <laughs> the longer we're holding on to it, you know, that's how we judge our performance against ourselves. You know, how quickly can we get this money paid out? We're always doing things to improve, you know, it's when it's played, how quickly can we get the first dollar out the door? You know, and I'm happy to say, you know, we have, we have some of the best, some of the best or possibly the best turnarounds in the industry. You may be familiar with this with your company, but, you know, we moved to paying monthly distributions of royalties in 2014. We're the only, you know, royalty organization in the world that, that does that, you know. If, you, if your account is set up and you're earning over a certain amount, we can get you paid monthly rather than waiting quarterly or waiting to get paid you know, once a year like some of the other royalty organizations out there. Yeah, that's been great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I got no problem with getting paid monthly. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Michael Darpino is Director of Account Services at Sound Exchange. Michael, thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What? Oh, you're welcome. Th- thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff as, as I hope it comes across. And, you know, um, my team is here to help. I just want to get that out there to your listeners. You know, we have an 800 number. We have our Sound Exchange website. Please contact us. You know, I have a whole staff here waiting to answer your questions. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Laura Veers, Owen McCarthy, and Tao Wynn. 
If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat, and you can subscribe to our podcast on Bandcamp. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. <laughs>